All right, if you would, let's open our Bibles once again to 1 John, the epistle of 1 John, and 1 John chapter number 1. 1 John chapter number 1, this will be our final week in the first chapter of 1 John. You may recall last week I preached on the light of God and the darkness of sin, and we looked in great detail at verses 5, 6, and 8, uh, and verse 10, 5, 6, 8, and 10, and however, because of the Lord's Supper, we did not give much attention to verses 7, 9, and uh, the first sentence of chapter 2, verse 1, at least not to the degree that I would have liked to. So with the help of the Lord, that's what we're going to do this morning. So look with me at 1 John chapter 1, and once again, I want to read to your hearing, beginning with verse 5, all the way down to the first sentence of chapter 2, verse 1. And I want to speak to you this morning upon the nature of the children of light. 1 John chapter 1, beginning with verse 5, hear now the word of the living God. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading and for the hearing of your precious holy word. God, we pray that you would help us to give us eyes, ears, and minds, and hearts to see, hear, And understand these words, because though they were penned by man, they were men who were impressed upon, breathed upon by the Holy Spirit of God. And we, Lord, need that same Holy Spirit this day to understand these spiritual words. And we pray that you would help us this day, give us understanding and use this text, use these words to draw us to a closer walk with Jesus Christ. For it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. We return this morning to the outline that we used last week, and I do not want to focus the majority of our and uh, our attention on uh, the first two verses. But as a way of introduction, I would like to briefly touch on some of the highlights of points one and two from last week. You recall we said verse five. We called it the banner. We called it the banner. It was the the the, the message for that's what it says. For this then is the message. Uh, Verse 5 sets the tone for the rest of the letter. The banner, the message that uh, they are proclaiming came directly from the source. It didn't come by way of worldly means. It didn't come by pagan means. The message came directly from him, as the text says, and that him is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no higher authority on heaven or on the earth than the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a higher authority than the government leaders and government authorities of this land. There are higher There is a higher authority than Justin Trudeau in Canada. 
There is a higher authority than Joe Biden here in America. There is a higher authority than all of the governments and all of the governmental leaders on the earth, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone, rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief, doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, is all accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ, whether they choose to believe it or not. Contrary to popular belief, as I've said many times, the Lord Jesus Christ is just not one of the many gods among the myriads of gods that are worshipped by people all over the world. Jesus is not a God. He is the God. He is the God-man, truly God, truly man, the second person of the Godhead, co-equal in power and authority and in nature with the Father and the Spirit. And as I've said for the last three weeks, I'll say it again, if a person does not profess faith in the Jesus of the Bible... If they do not believe in the true Jesus, in the true Lord Jesus Christ, as he is revealed by the Holy Scriptures, then that person does not possess saving faith. For it is in Jesus Christ where a person is cleansed of their sin and made right eternally with God. And in that saving relationship with Christ is where a person finds true hope, true joy, true meaning, True gratification and true peace. And this, and it is from Jesus Christ, the true Lord, the true Christ, where John and the rest of the apostles heard, as it says in the text, the message that we heard from him. And what is the message? God is light. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. We said last week light is a common metaphor in the Bible and is very often used to describe God and his divine holiness. And his divine goodness. We said last week that there are two absolutes that we can derive from the statement that God is light. The first, light represents the truth of God as embodied in his word. You ever think about why you believe the Bible? Why do you believe the Bible? This question came up last night of all places sitting in the auditorium of a dance recital. Lady in front of us was talking about her experience coming up in a Christian school and the questions that would get raised as to why do we believe the Bible? Because what often are we told? Why is this wrong or why is this right? Because the Bible says so. And that's it. We believe that. As Christians, we accept that. That is our foundation for everything. But for inquiring minds that may not be Christians yet, that are hungering and thirsting to know They need a little bit more than because the Bible says so. Why do we believe the Bible? Why do we trust the Bible? Because it's what pastors have told us? Because our Sunday school teachers have told us? Because our parents and our grandparents told us? No. God uses those testimonies. But we do not believe the Bible for any other reason than the fact that that is the very Word of God. And there are internal and external evidences that prove that the Bible is truly God's word. Think about this, the the internal evidences, those that are within the Bible, that, that defend the Bible, that prove that the Bible is true, that it is of divine origin. One, one evidence, one internal evidence is the Bible is truly God's word in its unity. The Bible is unified in its message from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And there are no contradictions in any of it. There were, even though it is uh, really 66 individual books that were written on three continents 
in three different languages over a period of approximately 1,500 years by more than 40 authors who came from all walks of life, many of whom did not live at the same time. They never knew one another. They came from all walks of life, and the Bible remains one unified book from beginning to end without contradiction. And this unity is unique from all other books and is evidence of the divine origins of the words of God that was moved, that uh, God moved upon men to write down. uh, Pastor and apologist, Vody Balcom, once said, he said, I choose to believe the Bible because it it is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They support supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human, than of human origin. That the Bible is divinely Inspired. It is, so one of the internal evidences that we see is that it is unified. There are no contradictions in it. No matter what someone says, this leads to another internal evidence. Uh, the Bible is truly God's word in the prophecy that it gives. The Bible contains hundreds of detailed prophecies relating to future uh, uh, events of various nations, certain cities, and all of mankind. And... Uh, you think about that, you, you can read the scriptures and then it talks about how certain civilizations had failed and it prophesied that before it happened and then it came to pass. But specifically, you think about the prophecies concerning the Messiah, the Savior of all who would believe in Him. Unlike the prophecies that are found in other religious books or by men like Nostradamus, biblical prophecies are extremely detailed. There are over 300 prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament. Not only was his lineage foretold, it was foretold where he would be born, but also how he would die and that he would rise again. And there is simply no logical way to explain the fulfillment of those prophecies in the Bible other than it came directly from God. There is no other religious book with the amount of detailed predictive prophecy than the Bible. A third piece of internal evidence of uh, the, d- the divine origin of the Bible is that it is unique in its authority and its power. You can read any other book and come away from it not being phased at all. You can come away from it not even really remembering that you actually read it. But while, and this evidence is kind of subjective than the first two, But it is no less a powerful testimony that the Bible is God's word. The Bible's authority is unlike that of any other book ever written. And you see this power in the, in, in the countless lives that have been supernaturally transformed. Drug addicts have been cured by it. Homosexuals have been set free by it. Derelicts and deadbeats have been transformed by it. Hardened criminals have been reformed by it. Sinners have been rebuked by it. And hate has been turned into love by it. The Bible does possess a dynamic and transforming power that is only possible because it's God's word. Then there are external evidences. There are, uh, there are external evidences that proves that the Bible is God's word. One is the histor- historicity of the Bible. I've said to you, you know, we don't often think of the Bible as actually being a history book. And it is. 
It tells us from where we came from, back from the, crea- from the day one of creation, all the way to where we're going in the resurrection, in the new heaven, in the new earth. Right? And, and, and um, so the Bible is, is, um, speaks of historical events with, great, well, with uh, great accuracy. And it's backed up by archaeological evidences, right? There are more manuscripts of the Bible that have been found than any other book in antiquity. And the fact that the Bible accurately records uh, historically uh, significant events helps substantiate its claim to be the very Word of God and supports and trusts concerning uh, other matters that the Bible addresses. Um, Another evidence, uh, another external evidence that speaks to the Bible is truly God's Word is the Bible's indestructible. So many people have tried to destroy the Bible, have tried to do away with it, uh, evil dictators have tried to run it out of countries, run it out of nations, but yet the Bible continues to be to to stand the test of time. From early Roman emperors like Diocletian through communist dictators and on to modern day atheists, the Bible has withstood the test of time and the onslaught from people that despise it, and it endures to this day to be the most widely published book in all the world. Why? Because they're the very words of God. The Lord Jesus said himself in Mark chapter 13, verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall never pass away. And I love what it says in Isaiah chapter 40. It says, all flesh is as grass. And the, glory, and the glory of man is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fades away, but the word of our God endures forever. And the second absolute that we can derive from the fact that God is light is that it sets up a natural contrast between light and darkness. If light is the metaphor for righteousness and goodness, then darkness signifies evil and sin. So the message is that God is completely and unreservedly, absolutely holy with no mixture, no stain of iniquity and no hint of injustice. Thinking about Isaiah 6, you think about Isaiah when he had his heavenly vision and he sees the Lord seated upon his throne lofty and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. What did Isaiah do? He said, woe is me for I am undone. Why? Because he was in the presence of such holiness. He was blinded by the holy light of God. And now because God is light and in him there is no darkness, now it causes John in this passage of 1 John Chapter 1, to draw a line in the sand that we see in verses 6, 8, and 10, we see the bogus. Point number 2, we talked last week, we saw the bogus, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Verses 6, 8, and 10 are not the real deal. They profess to be the real deal, but they're not. They profess to be a Christian, but they do not walk as a, a, a Christian should. They're not the real deal. They profess to be a believer, but their lives do not reveal true biblical repentance. They profess to know Christ as Savior and to walk with Him in right relationship. However, their lives speak to the contrary. And John says over and over and over that if this is the true nature of a person, then they truly do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when someone is in a relationship with Jesus, that brings about change. True change. A change of heart that's going to manifest in a change of light. They can no longer dwell in that darkness. They can no longer remain in their same exact lives prior to Christ. They can't go to the same haunts and hangouts that they once did. They cannot enjoy the same sinful lifestyles that they once did. Do they still sin? Do Christians 
still sin? Do believers still sin? Yes. Only now, a true believer cannot enjoy it. They have a deep sensitivity to sin. Therefore, because they have such a deep sensitivity to sin, it is not very long before that sensitivity brings about an inconsolable desire to confess that sin before God. And the people that John describes in verses 6, 8, and 10, they don't do that. They're deceived. They lie. They make God to be a liar, saying that they had, in fact, never sinned. God says such a, such a heart is not to be found in the child of God. So that brings us to point number three. The bona fide, the real deal. We've seen the banner. We saw the bogus. And now the bona fide, the real deal, the real McCoy in verses seven, nine in the first sentence of chapter two, verse one. I want to read those again to your hearing. Verse seven says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, verse 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First sentence of chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. So the glorious promise of the gospel is the free and gracious forgiveness of sin to everyone that truly repents and believes in the person and work of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That divine pardon is so comprehensive that God removes all, believe, all, all believing sinners' defilement. Belie he removes all of their defilement, all of their guilt, all of their punishment, and replaces those things with righteousness, sanctification, and a heavenly reward. And moreover, God's forgiveness is, eterni is eternal and unchangeable. And I want to read to you a portion of Romans chapter 8. I love to read this 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 section Romans chapter 8 because it's full of such truth and such encouraging truth Romans chapter 8 verse 1 this is to speak of what Christ does what the application of Christ's atonement does to the individual chapter 8 verse 1 says there is there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus I want to read that again that's good news there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Man, to know that truth, to have that truth and graft it into your heart and to understand it, that Jesus paid your sin debt upon the cross, all of your lies, all of your thievery, all of your blasphemy, all of your sexual sin, all of, either by thought or in the flesh, all of it, He paid for upon the cross and now because of his sacrifice there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus man that ought to make you run up and down Mountain Valley Road waving a handkerchief in the air it's good news that's good news that's why we should never walk around with the mule face that's why we should never be truly depressed and broken hearted I know those things happen I know the world can beat us down. But because of this truth right here, we don't stay there. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me read to you verse 28 as well. You should know, you know this one by heart. And we know that all things work together for good. And you think about that. You think about all the terrible, horrible tragedies that have taken place as of late. The evil that has been perpetrated Satan's working hard to destroy, to turn away. But look what it says. And we know that all 
things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Somewhere in each and every horrible situation, each and every horrible scenario, there is some lost person that God uses that situation to reach down and pull them out. Out of darkness and into His marvelous light. But we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them that are called, the called according to His purpose. And it only gets better from there. For whom did He foreknow? He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, then He also called. Whom He called, He also justified. And whom He justified, He also glorified. Tremendous, wonderful Truth, all done, not by our means, but by the means of the grace and mercy and merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 38, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the state of the, that's the standing of the believer. That is the standing of the true child of God. And we talked about this last week. How do we then reconcile the fact that if we have been saved forever through Christ, do we still need to continue to confess our sin? Aren't we saved, sealed forever, and, 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 and ready for heaven because of what Jesus did on the cross and nothing can change that? Yes. Do we still need to confess sin? Yes, also. Yes. It is because we have been saved judicially, right? That now there is, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Our relationship is, to God has changed. He who was once our judge is now our loving father. And now he deals with us as his children. Do we still sin? Yes. Sadly, yes, we do. And last week I referenced John chapter 13 where we, where we read about the uh, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And the Lord makes a distinction between the two aspects. Remember, Peter says, look, you don't, you know, I don't want to have, I, I, I ought to be washing your feet. Jesus says, you don't do this, you have no part in me. Well, Peter says, okay, then, uh, th- then you need to wash my whole body. Every bit of me needs to be clean. But Jesus said, you've already been washed. You believed in me. You've been washed. It's like, it's just your feet. Just your feet. Need to be clean. What, 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 is, what, is that, what does that signify? The all cleansing bath represents God's legal application of Christ's death to repentant sinners, completely and forever justifying them and freeing them from an eternity in hell. What about the, the feet washing? That represents that paternal forgiveness, the paternal forgiveness and sanctification. Although the sinner has already been justified once and for all, they have not been delivered from the presence and power of sin in their daily lives. I've said it once. I'll say it again. We will not be completely sinless in this life until we ourselves die and get promoted to headquarters. But what should we do? With everything in us, try to sin less. And so therefore, believers need to confess and forsake sin regularly and thereby washing the metaphorical dirt off of their feet during their Christian walk. We come 
to confess not to a condemning judge, but rather to a loving father, trying to avoid displeasing him and receiving his discipline. I've told you many times about our state and our standing. Because of Christ, if, if, you, if you have trusted him for the salvation of your soul, your standing before God is that you are in him. Your standing before God is that you are a born-again child of God, washed by the blood of Jesus, prepared, ready for heaven. Heaven is your destination, and that does not change, not because you earned it, not because you deserved it, but because He is worthy, and He does not lose children. Then there's our state. Our state can get a little muddy. Our state can change from moment to moment, right? And you think of it this way. If you disobeyed your earthly father, what happened? If he was a good father, he tore your tail up, right? He chastened you. He disciplined you, right? And he, he, your earthly father may have even gotten upset with you. He may have been deeply disappointed at you. But at any time in that disappointment and in that discipline, did you ever stop being his child? No. No, you did not. The same thing applies and even greater than with our Heavenly Father. He may chasten us. He may wear us out. But He never disowns us. He never removes us from His family. And I don't say this as an encouragement to run out and sin, but as more of a motivation not to sin all the more. And when you do stumble... You are to quickly confess it and forsake it and to keep those short accounts with your Heavenly Father. All right, now, in the brief time that we've got left, I want to focus in on three things. Three things here in the last, the last three, ver three verses of this passage. John concludes this opening section by applying three terms that describe true believers in contrast to those that are false, false believers that falsely profess to have saving faith. In verse 7, we see true believers are cleansed. Yet in verse 9, we see that they confess their sin. And then in the first sentence of chapter 2, verse 1, God has given His children the tools to conquer temptation to sin. All right, look, look with me at verse 7, cleansed. Look at me at verse 7, cleansed. Let's look at it again. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His Son cleanses us from all sin. I want to call your attention to that word, if. We talked about it during Sunday school. My grandfather used to make this statement all the time when the word if would come up. If is the smallest word in the English language, but it is the most powerful. Did he say that, Mama? It is the most powerful. You will not... The whole verse... The whole verse hangs upon that word, if. You will not have fellowship with other believers, and you will prove that you have not been cleansed uh, from your sin by the blood of Jesus Christ if you do not walk in the light. If you are not walking in the light, you have not been cleansed of your sin, and you do not have fellowship with other children, with, ch with the children of God. If you are not walking in the light because Jesus is the true light, then that person is not truly saved. And this is one of the many spiritual tests that John applies in this epistle. And we will see things like this over and over and over throughout this epistle as the Holy Spirit, through the pen of John, 
sought to enlist these spiritual uh, tests. Let's keep moving through verse 7. It says, if we walk in the light. If we walk in the light. We said earlier that light stands for everything about God. Good, holy, uh, His eternal purpose. what, what, What He decrees. What He wants. All right, walk speaks to a person's ordinary practice. It speaks to the practice of their daily lives. So walking in the light means living a life where the practice of holiness and righteousness and truth are found. Those who walk in the light do so because of the power of God has regenerated them. And as new creatures for whom new things have come, they will behave in a manner that reflects the powerful work of God that has been brought about in their lives. So the general pattern of their uh, day-to-day life will be actions and attitudes that are godlike. Therefore, because of this, because of this, they will have fellowship with one another, fellowship with other believers. All of us born again children of God are united together by the blood of Jesus. Something stronger than earthly familial blood, but the blood of Jesus. We all come from the same bloodline. We've talked on Wednesday nights recently about how God started over with Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? And so you could say that we all come, you know, we're all from one, one bloodline there. But even more than that, we all, for those who are born again, we all come from the same bloodline, the Lord Jesus. And it, uh, it was poured out for the salvation of our sin, and therefore we have a bond like, uh, uh, unlike any other. That's something else that we'll talk about greatly as we go through this epistle that John will, will point out. It's one of the high hallmarks, one of the attributes of the child of God, of a true believer. And that is the true believer must have a love for the church. The Lord Jesus Christ loved the church so much that he died for her. And therefore, you and I who are truly saved must, not should, must love his church as well you think back to what i preached on several months ago or not that many earlier this year the lone ranger christian does not exist according to the bible the unchurched christian does not exist according to the bible the people who say that you know i love the lord and i believe in jesus but i just don't go to church such a critter does not exist or if they go even further than that, they say that, well, you know, I, I believe in Jesus, but I don't want to go to church and be around hypocrites. They're telling a lie. They're lying because one cannot profess to love the Lord and at the same time hate the very church that he died to save. Gathering with our brothers and sisters in Christ to worship him in spirit and in truth is the most important thing you and I will do this week. And it should be our reason for missing other things and not other things the reason for us to miss worship. And look what it says. Look at what it says. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. To all who walk in the light, God grants his grace so that throughout our lives, the blood of Jesus continually, continually keeps on cleaning us. We're not totally free from sin. We won't be till we get to headquarters. However, the blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses away every impurity, every sin, and sin can never change a believer standing before God. Verse 9, verse 9, we think about that word confess. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession, confession is absolutely crucial to entering 
the light of God. To entering in the light of God, which is justification. And walking in the light. Entering in the light is justification. Uh, walking in the light is sanctification. In the Bible, the word confess means to say the same thing. That's how confess is defined. It means to say the same thing. So if you confess Christ, you're saying the same thing about Christ that God says about Christ. If you confess sin, you're saying the same thing about sin that God says about sin. Therefore, true believers are those who confess their sin, agreeing with God about their sin. They acknowledge its reality and affirm that it is a transgression of His law and a violation of His will. And the presence of this in a person's life drives them, pushes them to want to eliminate the sin from their life. They may stumble, may fall, but when they do, they're grieved to the heart that they have sinned against the very God of heaven that loved them so much that He sent Jesus to suffer and die on their behalf and therefore they confess their sin. So what John is saying here about confession is that since believers are forgiven, they will regularly confess their sin. Let me say it another way. Their forgiveness is not because of their ongoing confession, but rather that ongoing confession is because they have been Forgiven because they have been transformed. The believer does not continue to confess sin in order to be saved. That confession is part of their ongoing process of being sanctified, where they are becoming more and more and more like Jesus. And as the Holy Spirit sanctifies believers, He continually produces within the heart of a believer a hatred for sin. And that results in a repentant heart and a sincere knowledge for their sin. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. True believers are to hate sin. Not the sinners, but we're to hate sin. And that is something that is very difficult to do in our day and time, where we are told over and over and over that if we believe this book, and we hold to its teachings, and we stand on it, and we believe in the God that wrote it, that we are every manner of evil person and hateful person under the sun. We're hypocrites, we're bigots, racist. And when that continually gets hurled at you, you, the heart, fleshly speaking, cannot help but start to grow cold. Toward that. And the Lord Jesus says that in the Gospel of Matthew, for iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. We can become numb, spiritually numb to people that just continually love, loathe, just uh, love to uh, roll, go about in, sin, in sinful lifestyles and hurl at us that we're wrong for standing against it. That can happen so often that we just become numb to it. And then hate the people who are telling us that. God forbid that happened to us. We have to guard our hearts and guard our minds that they stay Christ-like. That we keep that Christ-like, that God-fearing mindset that looks at the person that hates the Bible, that hates the church, that hates God Almighty, that looks at them and says, if it weren't for the grace of God, go I. There but the grace of God go I. If it weren't for the Lord being merciful to me, I could be where they are and may have been where they are. 
So we have to watch that. But we are to hate sin, especially the sin within our own lives. We should hate it. It was the love of God within us and the desire to please God should create within us a hatred for our own sin to where we forsake it, do everything that we can to not do it. But when we stumble, when we do fall, because we're not completely perfect, we confess it. Keep those short accounts with our Heavenly Father and move on. I want to read another section to you, very familiar, that is found in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, it's this, uh, the section where the Lord Jesus is talking about the Pharisee and the publican, or the tax collector. He's saying this in front of other Pharisees, right? He's saying this in front of other people who think that they've got it all figured out, that they think they're so holy, that they're, that they're, that they're so righteous, right? Listen to what it says, Luke chapter 8, verse 18, verse 9. It says, And he spake this parable unto a certain which trusted in themselves, that's what self-righteous people do. They trust in themselves and their own merits, right? They trust in their own capabilities. And it says, which trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and yet they despised others. Verse 10, it says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a Republican, a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. He's praying to himself. This self-righteous, sanctimonious prayer certainly isn't going to God, right? He, he's, he's praying to himself because he, he's got it all figured out. He says, God, I thank thee. Well, he starts, he starts off good. God, I thank thee. But then he goes on and says that I am not as other men. Thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even that publican. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Man, don't break your arm patting yourself on the back. That's the self-righteous world. That's the self-righteous nature. But listen to the publican, because this uh, embodies the heart of the true child of God. One who has truly, truly understood what mercy and grace is. It says that verse 13, And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much his eyes unto heaven, but smote his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He was so overcome by his own sinfulness, he knew that he was so, uh, that God was so uh, holy, just, and righteous and good, and that he was not. That he was filthy, sinful, and that did not, he could not even bring himself to lift his eyes to heaven. And when he prayed, just said, God, please be merciful to me. Be mercy. Mercy is when, is when something has been extended to you that you didn't deserve. The person who extended to you had the power to punish you, but he withheld, he withheld it. That's what God did. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what does the Lord Jesus say? He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humble himself shall be exalted. This is the heart of the true believer that is aware of sin, particularly their own. 
In John, in, back in our passage in 1 John, when John's talking about confessing of sin, he's not talking about referring to feeling bad, people that feel bad about their sin simply because they got caught or because their sinful actions brought about hard, you know, hard times, hard consequences upon them. But rather he was describing the kind of godly sorrow that produces repentance, that brings about that change of mind and that change of action. And when, when repentance is present, when that, when, when that mercy of God is present in the, in, in the heart of a believer, believers will have a strong desire to deal with it and to deal with it at any cost. And the Lord Jesus tells us that's what we're to do. We're not, I've talked about this many times, we're not to give territory to sin. We're not to play with it. We're to kill it. When we discover it, we're to kill it. We're to get it out of our lives. The Lord Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, He says, But if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. What does that mean? That we're to maim ourselves? That we're to gouge our eyes out? No. But we're to take drastic measures radical measures to get the sin out of our lives. That means it might have to change where we hang. We might have to change where we hang out. We might have to change who we hang around. It may mean that we put blocks on our computers and our phones so that we can't go to certain websites. It may mean that we have to stop hanging out with people that don't support our Christian faith. But that confession and repentance, it's a work of God that leads to salvation and it's, a, it's a, a work that continues on. That pattern that continues on, that confession continues on. Confession and repentance isn't a one-time thing. It becomes a lifestyle for the believer. It's a hallmark of a true believer that they continue for the rest of their lives to confess their sin to the God that loved them. So for the bona fide, for the born again, the Lord cleanses His people for all eternity with His, with His precious cleansing blood. And He keeps on cleansing in our walk. As our walk gets muttered, He keeps on cleansing. The Holy Spirit uh, does the work of regeneration within, a, within the heart of the believer and it causes them to confess their sin to God as they enter through the narrow gate for eternal salvation and to and, and, and the Holy Spirit uh, convicts them to keep on confessing as they go throughout the rest of their lives. And that's the process of sanctification. So we've seen cleanse, confess, and now look at me at chapter 2, verse 1, the first sentence, as we see the conquering. Listen to what it says. My little children, the aged apostle, John, I told you John's up in age, right, when he writes this. And so he's writing this to other believers who are younger than him. And he says, my little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. These things that I'm writing to you are so that you don't sin. If you do, God is gracious. God is merciful. God is loving. God is, is, is kind. God has saved you for an eternity and He's not going to disown you. But it should be your utmost goal to not do it in the first place. Romans chapter 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 14, For sin shall not be 
master over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. The born again child of God is to not allow sin to continue to have rule over us. There was a time, B.C., before Christ, when it ruled us, when we uh, were at its beck and call, and we took no thought of it, right? It did not, we did not bat an eye to commit sin, but now that we have been saved, and we see just and understand just what all Christ had to endure for us to be saved. Now, we don't want to take that for granted, so now you don't let sin to master you and you take those, those steps, whatever it is that you have to do to, to, to take those radical steps to kill that sin within our lives. The Apostle John, along with the rest of the apostles, wanted us to know, thus proving that uh, God wants us to know that we have the capability to have victory over sin. Is it something that's found in our own efforts that we're able to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps? No, no. But the Lord has given us three tools. Three tools that are at our disposal that we can have, so that we can have victory over sin. The first one is the Holy Spirit of the living God. The Holy Spirit of the living God. When a person is regenerated, that ho- the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead comes to set up residence within our heart. He's there. He convicts us. He lets us know when we have sinned. He lets us know. And it, it, it is then that, uh, bring, that brings about that confession. God um, contrasts the deeds of the flesh with the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read a little bit of that to you. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. This I then say, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. There's this ongoing battle. Our fleshly nature still wants to, to, to do the things that we did prior to becoming a Christian. But the Spirit within us says, no, you can't do that anymore. And the Apostle Paul goes on to say in other places says that he had to die daily. He had to die. He had to crucify that old sinful nature, right? We're not supposed to uh, walk in the sinful lusts of the past. But verse 18 of uh, Galatians chapter 5, But if ye be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then it goes on to talk about the, the, the works of the flesh and the, the evil sinfulness. But listen to the fruits of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. Those are the fruits. Those are the, the attributes that are supposed to be seen in the heart and the lives of the believer. So in that passage, um, all believers are, uh, are called upon to walk in the Spirit, to be our regular practice of our everyday lives. We all possess the Holy Spirit, but this passage tells us that we need to walk in the Spirit, so we need to yield to His control. And that means to choose to consistently, and we all need to get a good handle on that word, consistently. We need to seek to live consistent Christian lives. That means more than just one day a week. Consistent, a pattern over time, consistently follow the Holy Spirit's prompting in our lives rather than following our flesh. And the more we pull away from the world, because we're supposed to be in the world and not of it, the more we realize that we're supposed to be that peculiar people, we're supposed to be different, supposed to think different, walk different, talk different, dress different, smell different than the rest of the world, the more that we pull away from the world and the things of it, and the same time we're drawing nigh unto God, 
And I look, I go back again to that hymn that we, we turn our eyes upon Jesus. He is uh, the, the prize. He is the destination. He is the, he is the reason we turn our eyes upon him, thinking about all he has done for us and all that's awaiting, uh, all that's awaiting us when he calls us home. That makes everything, the things of this sin cursed world grow strangely, strangely dim. And through that, we can have victory over sin. And then there's the Bible. There's the Bible. So we have the Holy Spirit and the Bible. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of son of the soul, the spirit, the joints, and the marrow. It's sharp, boy. And it, and it discerns even the thoughts and intents of the heart. And the Bible is, probably, it, 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 it is here for us. It, it, right now, you know, how, how many people around the world in third world countries would give to have even a page out of this book but yet you and I, have, how, how many copies of the Word of God do you have in your house right now? How many versions do you have, right? But yet how neglected is your Bible? Does it only get opened when you come to church on Sunday? There is a truth, there is a, there is a treasure chest of wealth for us there within the Bible that is at our disposal if, over, if we would just pour ourselves into it. You know, we don't miss the news Right, we're not gonna miss what what's, what what happens on Fox News. We're not gonna miss what you know a, a favorite television show or whatever. But often, when it comes to the Bible, we're either anorexic or bulimic. We either take in just enough to keep us spiritually alive, or we come to feed, uh, um, or we don't feed on it often enough. We don't feed on it enough. And so we need to take time to make it a practice to feed upon the Word of God daily. That's why I've had these uh, Bible reading challenges. That's why we pondered the Psalms. That's why we read the New Testament last summer. I want you to read the Bible every day for yourself to challenge what you hear, even from me, to know for certain that what I'm saying is scripturally accurate. To know what you hear from someone else is scripturally valid. And so that you can take the things from Scripture, apply them to your own life, and so that you can have victory over sin. And then there's prayer. We neglect the Bible reading, and we definitely neglect prayer. I can speak from personal experience. If there's one area in my spiritual walk that is neglected, it's my prayer life. I'll admit it, right? It is a resource that we neglect far, far, far too often, we'll take time and dedicate it to other things, to the TV, young people, to the phone, whatever. But we won't set time away to, ded to dedicate to get alone with God. And how important is prayer to overcoming sin? What did Jesus tell Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, before Peter denied him? Right When Jesus goes a little further to pray, he goes and pray, but he tells them, he, he says, watch and pray. Why? So that you don't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we, like Peter, we want to do what's right, but, but are not finding the strength. Prayer will help. Prayer is not the magic formula. Prayer is simply acknowledging our limitations, and it's acknowledging God's inexhaustible power. And turning to Him for strength so that we can do not what we want to do, but what He wants us to do. So there's the Holy Spirit, there's the Bible, there's prayer, and the fourth thing is the church.
one another. When Jesus sent his disciples out, he sent them out two by two. He he did not save his church to do life alone, right? We need one another to prop one another up, to encourage one another when we have things happen in our lives, when there's death, when there's sickness, when there's sadness. We need one another to prop one another up. But the Bible also says in the book of Proverbs that iron sharpens iron. And so we need one another to help, to help and to pray for one another and to help one another overcome temptation of sin. So we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Bible, we have prayer, and we have the church. We have our own brothers and sisters to help us to overcome, uh, to overcome sinful temptation. And that's why John writes, my little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. Sometimes victory comes quickly. Other times victory is more slowly. God has promised that as we make use of his resources, he will progressively bring about change in our lives. We can persevere in our efforts to overcome sin because we know that he is faithful to his promises. I'm reminded of that. They used to pick on me down at uh, uh, Willis because Haywood and even Jerry Robertson, the the deacon that would always say that there was some 8,000 promises in the Bible. I've never sat down and counted how many promises there are. I don't know. And I read a commentary one time that says it was, I don't know, five or 6,000 promises. And they picked on me about that. However many promises there are in this book, we can say with absolute assurity, however many there are, God's never went back on any of them. And He never will. So when he tells us that he will never uh, leave us nor forsake us, he will be there to help us and he will help us when we're tempted with sin. So as you grow in Christ, there should be decreasing frequency to sin. And so John gives us a clear picture of who a Christian is, one who is being cleansed, one who has been cleansed, one who who has confessed and keeps confessing, and one who is also conquering. How's it with you this morning? Let's pray. God, our Father, we're truly grateful and thankful for your word as I have unworthily tried to unfold it. God, we thank you, Lord, for the tools, for the gifts that you've given us, the things that we have at our disposal to be people of God. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit within us that can help us to understand your word and the Holy Spirit of God who helps us to worship, who helps us to to resist when, and, and who convicts us when we do sin. And God, we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of prayer. God, help us, Lord, to ne- not to neglect this privilege, not to neglect uh, uh, immersing ourselves in your word, and not to neglect not setting time to get alone with you in prayer to you, O oh God. And God, we thank you for the blessing of the church, of our brothers and sisters that we have to prop one another up, to lean on, to encourage, to help us, Lord, through this Christian life and this lost and dying world. God, we need one another. We need one another. We need you, and we thank you that we have all the above because of you. So help us now, Lord, to be people who desire your righteousness, that seek to resist sin, that seek to turn away from temptation, that seek to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. All these things we ask and pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.